to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that isn't afraid, Amanda, to ponder the difficult, timeless questions. One like, is a malted milkshake a sexual food? Um, there's gotta be, right? Like, uh, the what is that song? My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard? It's, it's gotta be it's a malted true. one, though, She right? did try, and I, <laughs> this is how you know our research department is, you know, they, they're on limited hours, they're a part-time crew. I don't remember who that was. I keep wanting to think it was Sierra, but it wasn't Sierra who sang that Kellis, song. Kellis, I think. Kellis. Kellis. Yeah, Kellis. that's it. Yeah, she really tried to recontextualize it, didn't she? Uh, the reason she I cannot get on board with this is because if you just say the word milkshake to me, or, you know, then I picture a milkshake. But if you say to me, a person consuming a milkshake, or what is it? what are the images? I almost immediately think of, like, kids with kind of dirty mouths. Does that make it where it's like, you know what I mean? Where they drink it kind of sloppy. So it's like there's some milkshake on their lip and maybe on the chin. And they're just kind of like, uh-huh. and it's also, it's such a food of childhood to me that, and now granted, mm-hmm. I, I don't think they should be, you know, forbidden from adults or not that it should even be like verboten or something to drink them uh, as an adult. I think they're delicious, but it just, I just can't get on board with this. So that whole section in this book, when they were trying to make that happen, <laughs> uh, I don't know. It was that misreading it. That that was what was happening, right? At some point in the story. Yeah, like while she's like drinking her malted milkshake, trying to thicken her hips up, right? She's like constantly trying yeah. to gain weight. Yeah, and she's yeah, and also she's like imagining feeding it or eating it with him. No, is that not? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which I mean, that's a very like when I think of uh, malted milkshakes in particular, the soda shop type. I think of like the couple. The girl with like her poodle skirt and the guy with like his letterman's jacket and they're like sure. sipping together. <laughs> yeah, they're not totally America has not culturally moved on from them totally, but there is an era where they seemed like a much bigger part of the the food culture. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're more of a niche item these days, I would say. Froyo's yeah. in, you know, malteds are out. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing mm-hmm. sexual about Froyo. Froyo is like apple or something. It's like the least sexual food. <laughs> apple, I mean, like yeah. the company. Like, it's for some reason, it feels very kind of almost too integrated or too frictionless or something in a weird way. It feels, I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's adjectives I'm not pulling right now, but it, I don't know. Froyo, not sexual. If you have no idea why we're <laughs> pondering the sexuality or sexual symbolism of these foods, it is because you've stumbled upon a book club episode. It is a part one book club for the novel Jazz by Toni Morrison. Um, we're discussing something from the first half of that. If you've never tuned into the podcast before, welcome. You found a a pretty good place to start. Uh, there are book recommendations and book club podcasts up in our podcast feed. Also, we have social media accounts that we should plug if you want to follow us and keep up with what we're doing and what we're reading. We are uh, at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word on Facebook and Instagram. So if you want to keep up with us, know what our reading schedule is, and just see what we're doing and covering please follow us there. We always appreciate that. And any podcast platform that you're on, leave a rating or a recommendation. We appreciate that also. Book club episodes for us are uh, analysis episodes, and they're also filled with spoilers. So if you're concerned about having the novel Jazz by Toni Morrison spoiled for you, or at least the first half of it, then maybe pause on this one, go check out our recommendation, go pick up a copy from wherever you get books, and, you know, come back. This will be up in the feed forever, as long as we keep doing this, so check us out later, maybe. But if you're ready for that discussion, let's dive into it. Today we'll be spoiling, you want to call them chapters, right? Why not? We'll do what Morrison didn't want to. (laughs) (laughs) 
Because mine are unlabeled. Are yours labeled as chapters? Mine are also unlabeled, yeah. But, I mean, they're broken up into essentially okay. yeah. chapters, yeah. Sections? Right, yeah. So today we'll be spoiling the first half of the book as it is the part one episode. Yeah, there's four sections, chapters, parts. There's clear page breaks between these four things, so call them what you want or designate them what you want or how you will. That's what we'll be spoiling and discussing today. For our part, Amanda, let's just call them chapters. Yeah. Anything before we dive in? I did choose this book, which by now you'll, if you've heard the book recommendation, we've already talked through. I, I basically just chose it to get another author in the podcast who we had already read, because Stephen King was our only repeat so far, and that just didn't mm-hmm. seem right to me. Not that I don't like certain things about King and respect it. I just thought I would pull from an author that we both had a very positive reaction to, so it seemed like going back to Morrison, who also is a really rich literary history and bibliography so lots to pull from and of course you can't beat the ultimate reason which i pick all my books this way at this point i'm just pulling from books i've bought and have never read (laughs) i just (laughs) i have a mass mass you know shame shame size bookshelf that i just need to start working through and so a good a good reason to pick as any Let's dive in. Uh, I will begin by summarizing what we're going to call chapter one. So let's dive into what this story is about. Um, we always do, for our book clubs, we'll do a little bit of a summary to catch you up, and then we'll do some analysis and some discussion along the way. So this book opens with a literary device that I think is now a Toni Morrison trend, which is a Greek chorus. Were you expecting this? Does she always do this? Uh, I don't know, but I, I feel like she must, right? Like, I'm going to have to go back sure. and and try to reread uh beloved I, I never finished reading that so yeah it's it did make me want to do a quick survey of her work because the three <clears throat> novels i can think of have this so <laughs> i think because beloved i'm pretty sure has one but maybe i'm misremembering that novel bluest eye does anyway so it kind of lays out the whole story pretty clearly but i'll run through it for you too joe and violet are a married couple who are living in the city which is basically it has to be new york because it mentions lennox ave which is like a famous new york city street the other thing that threw me though is it also mentions l trains which is a really common expression in chicago so do you have any preference on this (laughs) where they are i kept imagining it was new york but especially i think she does mention specifically somebody going to chicago from the city Mm. so yeah but yeah yeah, the l train also for me i was like what and they're from the East Coast. They're from Virginia. So it, it does make sense that it would be New York. So I'm totally fine with New York. Anyway, also, it's to be in the 20s about jazz, it's kind of it's clearly meant to be in Harlem. I, I don't know how often they say things like Harlem. I don't I don't actually know if they've mentioned that specifically yet. I don't think but they it's have. Just, it, just, it just seems like it should be, I, given the way yeah. history was and the setting and every Anyway, the music that comes up, it all feels very Harlem. But let's talk about Joe. Joe falls in love with a teenager. Well, he has an affair with a teenager named. Uh, are you going with Dorcas? Dorcas? It can't be Dorcas. Dorcas. Is it Dorcas? I, yeah, it's Dorcas. Yeah, that's that's an actual name. Okay, I'd never heard the name Dorcas before. I just thought it was like a soft C, maybe Dorcas. Okay, so it's Dorcas. No, uh, yeah. Man, uh, definitely a name you don't hear often anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's an um, old name. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that just feels odd on the tongue, but that's fine. Uh, falls for this teenager <laughs> named Dorcas, and they, he begins an affair. Uh, for an unknown reason and in an unknown way, it's implied that maybe he was angry and passion was, was heavily involved. He kills her, and then in a rage and grief, 
like Violet shows up to Dorcas's funeral and tries to slash her face the of her corpse at that point. So we we know that there was a love affair. We know that there's some intense passions and potentially a murder and violence and everything. Uh, then we meet the narrator briefly, who is an unnamed observer who has gotten used to life in the city and kind of fills us in on what it's like to live there. And it gives their, I don't know, views of what living in the city is like. Uh, is the narrator a character in the story? Because there's a character later who's kind of an observer. Did you read it that way or no? Um. So I didn't. I wasn't sure until actually the fourth chapter. There's a character um, later though who is clearly someone observing them and kind of is aware of them. I don't know if it's the same person. Uh, from what I've I read, um, no. Okay. That's, a, that's just a different. Just person. an unnamed. But I know who you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. So we we learn a little of this person's philosophies and what they see, but not the most critical part of the book, just kind of a setup to the city. Uh, Finally, we get to observe Violet and Joe after Dorcas's murder, so we're kind of, we don't see that happen. We we don't even really, again, know much about what happened yet. And they are living uneasily together. Um, Oddly, they both, she allows Joe to keep a picture of Dorcas around, and they both kind of contemplate the picture and look at it, obviously for very different reasons. In the meantime, Violet continues her work as a hairdresser, and we learn more about kind of her feelings, things she's wanted, this parental instinct and yearning she can have at times, and how that's affected her. And it's a lot of character work, obviously. Summarizing the plot of this is feels kind of odd, because it's <laughs> it's not plot-heavy yeah. writing, it's Toni Morrison, so that's just some of the things that have been coming up and thinking about. Let's talk about that picture. An interesting start to know that Dorcas is showing up in their literal home. Did that, uh, are you reading that? On the that mantle, in, no less. Yeah. How do you read that in any way, character-wise, conflict-wise? Like, how did you? What did that say to you, <laughs> early? Well, it was um, it was interesting, especially because it's Violet who puts the picture up. Right. Right. Um, and it's and it, the picture comforts the both of them in different ways. It allows them to get some sleep. Um. Because neither one of them can sleep at night. They're they're just so, like, anxious to have to share a bed together. Mm-hmm. So, like, <clears throat> Joe gets up to look at the picture and, like, remember and to feel and to mourn. But Violet gets up just out of curiosity and is like, what does she see? What is, like, trying to look through life through her eyes almost in mm-hmm. a way? Yeah. Yeah, I find it really fascinating that the way that Violet is approaching uh, Dor- her, uh, making a relationship almost with Dorcas um, who was only, well, how old was she at she the time? 18, she was 18 like I think yeah, yeah 18, young yeah. for sure yeah there's yeah. some descriptions here that we've got some birdcage imagery which will not I'm not going to dwell on too much but then there's some <laughs> interesting ways to describe things here her photo is described at quote on page 11 what seems like the only living presence in the house so Despite her, you know, literal death, there's obviously some profound psychological effect that she's had on this couple, the person who, you know, cheated and the person who got cheated on. And so 
Yeah, I think vileless descriptions too. If the tip, this is on page twelve. But if the tiptoer is vile, the photograph is not that at all. The girl's face looks greedy, haughty, and very lazy. The cream at the top of the milk pail face of someone who will never work for anything. Someone who picks up things lying on other people's dressers and is not embarrassed when found out. Is the face of a sneak who glides over to your sink to rinse the fork you have laid by her plate. An inward face. Whatever it sees is its own self. There you are, it says, because I am looking at you. And so she's, you know, obviously taking her rage at this incident and projecting it, fairly, unfairly, whatever, who, who's, we're not even really certain who's to blame yet, though later we did get Joe's kind of justification for the affair. But it is a, it shows the kind of limbo that Violet's in, in a personality, in a psychology and an emotional sense all those senses like Mm -hmm. she's just in a strange twisted place obviously very undone by this yeah undone is exactly what she is that's the perfect word (laughs) yeah uncomfortable i also noticed like uh you briefly touched on the the birdcage stuff but um the the parrot is interesting to me the parrot that says i love you um, and is like the only phrase that he says, but I, I was likening that to what, um, a theme that I noticed in, in this first chapter, which is, um, communication and how communication has kind of, um, been broken between Joe and Violet yeah. and also communication as, as we see in the entire novel so far and in the way that the story is being told, which is an interesting way to communicate a story anyway. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but we also see with the communication on, on page 24, there's um, an apparent loss of actual language, which is pretty interesting. Violet is having a hard time. She She sometimes, like... Um, says the wrong words or she doesn't remember certain words she's she can't string together sometimes coherent sentences with joe can pick up on and other people notice but but they just think oh it's just like a slip up um Mm -hmm. but joe's like "Mm, i've noticed this has been happening a lot so i found that really interesting as well and with a parrot that only has one phrase on top of that, I, I, I don't know. I want to see how that kind of yeah. develops. I don't know if you've noticed anything well, with in it. The, in the phrase, it isn't, doesn't it just say, I love you or love you? What's one of yeah. those? Yeah. 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 I love you. It's strange, too, to think that, yeah, she has some kind of city-based mental regression or something for sure. When Joe, I know I'm jumping ahead a little and I don't have the page ready for this, but when he finally gives the neighbor the reasons for the affair, he's extremely lucid. You know, that doesn't mean justified, but he's very lucid with his reasoning and he's very clear. And it basically comes down to we're not connected like we used to be. I'm very lonely. I just need somebody to carry some of my emotional weight basically like i need to have a partner in this or or whatever so yeah the communication breakdown thing is it's a motif to keep an eye on sort of like it's clearly partially whatever drove them apart is related to that i think i think as the book goes forward in the second half maybe we'll see more flashbacks to kind of the 
I don't know how to phrase this, but just the the influence of the city in general, like the city life, the chaos of it, maybe the transitions that it seems to have some effect. So mm-hmm. that, that could be a big part of it, too. Any brief thoughts before we move on to chapter two about Violet's penchants for childcare, her babysitting skills? <laughs> a crucial early <laughs> moment, I think. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the um, the baby that she tried to like steal. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Although she was like playing it off like she wasn't trying to steal the baby. Right. But. It, she clearly has an internal monologue, though. We as readers are privileged to her internals, so we know that she yeah. is thinking about it. <laughs> she very much tries to play it off later. But yeah, she's, um, I think this is on page 20. Let me pull, I had this pulled up, yeah. Joe will love this, she thought, love it. And quickly her mind raced ahead to their bedroom and what was there in it and she could use for a crib until she got a real one. There was a gentle soap in the simple case and she could bathe him in the kitchen right away. Him? Was it a him? She lifted her head to the sky and laughed at the excitement in store when she got home to look. It was the laugh, loose and loud, that confirmed the theft for some and discredited it for others. So, I mean, obviously we're... It's hard to say with this narrator it, who, if we're in her head or not, but the narrator certainly supposing what she's thinking, <laughs> and right. so it feels very internal. Um, yeah, it just it does set up. I think what's going to be a key thing. They clearly, again, I know we jump ahead in terms of analysis. This comes up later because they yeah. agreed they didn't want to have kids. They had some miscarriages, I believe. It, it claimed uh, I couldn't see. I can't remember now if they were miscarriages or abortions. I think it's miscarriages. She, she called them miscarriages. Okay, specifically. I, yeah, I thought so. And so this clearly comes up later that they they didn't want to have a family that w- wasn't how they wanted to live their lives together. But I don't know if that created more tension. You know, led to the Dorcas affair. Man, I just am never going to get over saying Dorcas. That's I just can't believe it. Um, what, what an unusual name. It's just interesting. It, I also think it's just because it sounds so much like dork, which is such a common insult now. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. that's maybe that has a similar. What's the word entomology? Is it anyway? Yeah, so that's a crucial early moment for. Her. I'm not. I wasn't sure how to read it until later, but maybe this will be one of the wedges that drives them apart, sort of. Yeah, when I first encountered that um, that piece of information, I was like, "Huh, it's it's just for the especially with the laughter." I was like, "So we do see some of that like kind of mental breakdown um, mm-hmm. of and and like that we should not necessarily trust her as uh, somebody who has the wherewithal to." act logically yeah yeah i think that's a good reading well put it's it definitely morrison wants to unsettle i think and at least draw into question her mental well-being that's a generic way of phrasing it now because i think there's specific terms and things we can use as the novel goes forward but Mm -hmm. yeah it just makes clear that she if can't be if cannot be trusted the right phrase definitely doesn't have a clear vision you know for how things should be going and how should be behaving should be behaving yeah how about yeah. chapter two all right chapter two this chapter uh delves more deeply into the details of joe's infidelity violet and joe were from the country um, and down south and violet made the decision for the couple to move to the city 
And they were young, happy, and completely in love. The train ride to the city was really nerve-wracking, but the two made it fun by swinging from the baggage rails and dancing along with the train's movements, so they were having a good time. However, over time, Joe forgets what it was to actually feel the emotions of his memory, so he remembers everything, right? He, he remembers the, se- the sequence of events, but he just doesn't remember the feelings associated with those memories, which is what eventually drives him to seek out Dorcas and to rent a room from Malvone, mm-hmm. who is a discreet but observant woman whose nephew has stolen people's letters and hidden them in her apartment. Yeah. He stole them in order to look for money She's and stuff. Snooping. So. She's snooping. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I thought but she might be discreet. the narrator. Yeah. Yeah. I thought she might be, but it doesn't have to be for sure. Yeah, the yeah, it, it, she could be the the narrator does seem to reserve a lot of judgment and it's just more like offering up information a right. lot of the time, but right. also we do get um later insertions of like, well, I think this and I think that. So, yeah, they have a weird omnipotence at times. It's maybe one of the things in the narrative that not to jump way ahead, isn't quite working for me, is it does feel a little loose with the slipping in and out of both time, place, and person. <laughs> it yeah. has strange omnipotence in some paragraphs, and then in others, it's very much an interjection by a human who wants to talk to you. Coming off of, I'm just thinking of recent ones with strong voices, like Something Wicked or True Grit, those narrators never flinch, and they are the voice they are, You know, I think, for better in both cases. And this just mm-hmm. feels... It's, I mean, fittingly enough, I guess, more jazz-like. It is, it's really moving and jumping, and you can't always predict where it's headed. Anyway, yeah. any themes start to jump out to you in two, chapter two? Yeah, so um, the big one here, which ties in with the overall, um, the affair and everything, is, is what is love versus what is desire. And this is, I think... Um, tied into the image of the city so the fascination of the city and and the the narrator's apparent distaste for the city in a lot of ways too um where she actually says um or she i i say she but i'll explain that later Mm -hmm. uh where the narrator um discusses on pages 33 through 34 specifically that she uh the narrator talks specifically about desire and about love um mm. and let me see if I can find a That's quote fun. real quick. Okay. Little of that makes for love, but it does pump desire. The woman who churned a man's blood as she leaned all alone on a fence by a country road might not expect even to catch his eye in the city. But if she is clipping quickly down the big city street in heels, swinging a purse or sitting on a stoop with a cool beer in her hand, dangling her shoe from the toes of her foot, the man, reacting to her posture, to soft skin on stone, the weight of the building, stressing the delicate dangling shoe, is captured." Uh, blah 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 and that kind of fascination permanent and out of control seizes children young girls men of every description mothers brides and barfly women and if they have their way and get to the city they feel more like themselves more like the people they always believed they were Mm. so all of that to say even the description there of like the man falling in love with this woman it's also very much based on the setting Right, he's he's looking at the stone of the building. He's looking at the sidewalks. He's looking at all that stuff. So, the the way that uh, almost 
the idea of like context, the context of, of love and desire is just as important as the feelings themselves or even perhaps more so and that the context actually fuels desire so we're still kind of searching for what is according to the narrator what is love then yeah Um, the the, there's some sky some pretty complex that's what i kind of pulled too because it's some pretty complex symbols going on with what the sky can represent and what it can mean depending on your your setting your situation that yeah i mean on the next one so the end of that quote reads no wonder they forget about pebbly creeks and when they do uh, when they do not forget the sky they completely think of it as a tiny piece of information about the time of day or night so life becomes you know in a city this sort of you forget I don't know, these natural, simpler connections, and instead everything becomes mechanical and practical, and it all becomes about the hustle, right? New York City famed culturally, I I would say, for trying to find a dream, trying to work to achieve something. Like, isn't that why most people go there, is to try and sort something out and achieve something, in in a sense? It's very busy workman-like city that's kind of what it's what it's known for i mean I, you know i guess most cities have jobs so that's a pretty basic <laughs> understanding but in in the states i would say new york has that reputation especially right um the, the jay-z quote tells us such but and so then it goes on there's a long i'm not going to read the next paragraph obviously because it's you know a page long or something <laughs> but there's a lot about the night sky and what it means. Um, I'll pull a couple lines. Uh, she says, But there's nothing to beat what the city can make of a night sky. It can empty itself of surface and more like the ocean than the ocean itself go deep, starless. Close up on the tops of buildings, near, near the cap that you are wearing, such a city sky presses and retreats, presses and retreats, making me think of the free but illegal love of sweethearts before they are discovered. Looking at it, this night sky becoming over a glittering city, it's impossible, or sorry, it's possible for me to avoid dreaming of what I know is in the ocean and the bays and tributaries it feeds. Uh, and then the two-seat aeroplanes, and then it just, you know, a lot of lists of things. So, I mean, how do you read that quote in terms of... Because I think it's blending things about what the city did to them in. Any mm-hmm. Does that mix in with what you're thinking? Yeah, for sure. I think that the, the city is almost... Um, it's almost an allegory for the, the relationship that we're seeing kind of um, implode here. It's it's just interesting because it's the press and retreat thing. <clears> this <throat> an ocean waves that matches up okay. I, I get the flow, but then it's the starlessness, right? Starless and kind of deep mm-hmm. and vast. But to to pair that, which to me is kind of an image of calm, and I mean, I guess it can be kind of void like and maybe frightening. But I don't. I just don't. I guess I don't see how that pairs with young people flitting about and having casual relationships that don't last like to me that would read oppositely so it's in, it's complicated for sure it's not easy to unpack these images i would say because i don't mm-hmm. yeah i don't know i'm not sure if you can unpack that for me but it's yeah night sky booming over a glittering city avoid dreaming what i know is in the ocean so maybe it's maybe it is a bit of avoidance then yeah presses and retreats i guess it's the kind of buildings the chaos of how much is there it's come and go it's so much up and down i suppose maybe that maybe i am was reading it backwards or something but well the the point the point too is that um the narrator is pointing out that a lot of these people aren't even looking at the night sky that a lot of people don't realize that that 
kind of sky exists in the city because they're so focused on the buildings and the people within the city itself. So, so, so they're so focused on the desire aspect, right? Um, that they are missing the big picture, which could be the, um, <clears throat> the emptiness, the, the overwhelming nature of, of perhaps like of love, of, of letting yourself go and of not needing and, and searching for something. Yeah. Yeah, it ends. That kind of series of images and ideas ends with um, six hours a week he has purchased. So, you know, for his affair to have a separate room. Time for the city sky to move from a thin ice blue to purple with a heart of gold. And time enough when the sun sinks to tell his new love things he never told his wife. So, yeah, those that purple with a heart of gold image is definitely suggesting something about the... um, nature of affairs the nature of the city and kind of it's how it gets its influence into you and changes your i don't know emotional state <laughs> your connections with yeah. people stuff like that um it's eerie it's definitely playful and it's it's kind of tony morrison chaotic i will say that it's those couple of pages i think i reread at least once i i don't know if it had a fully satisfying tony morrison genius level feeling when I finished it but there's enough there to unpack I mean obviously I just tried to and failed but (laughs) so I'm not sure it's her most coherent stuff for me but it was intriguing and I think it it's playing with ideas clearly between this couple that that need to be explored maybe we'll see some more of it maybe we'll see because um Violet is uh kind of a void as well right now right she's yeah a void of emotion a void of of control and <laughs> a void of yeah um of anything really so yeah mm-hmm. so maybe we'll see some more play on that and maybe we can unpack it later. yeah yeah or maybe it's like the lights that play off that so well because it's a contrast thing i don't know it's mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. there's a lot to it uh any other thoughts from chapter two um just a quick one which is in the last paragraph the when Joe was like with Dorcas, but then thinking mm-hmm. of his mom, and like, yeah, they're never far away, her are to they? Be like a mom. <laughs> it's, it's never far away. That leap, it's uh, disturbingly close to the surface. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. God. But um, also for Dorcas too. Dorcas is also, um, the it cuts to the scene of her. Uh, calling out for her mother to help her get the dolls out of the the burning house, but her mom has mm. obviously passed at that point. Right. Um, right. So yeah, there's. I mean, yeah, the the mothering the the idea of like motherhood and the importance of the relationship with the mothers is a recurring theme that I find really interesting too. Yeah, so well, far. let's see if we there's something to talk about on that later. I've not picked up on that as much, but they do talk about their backgrounds enough to say it, it is one. Let's jump to chapter three. We meet a new character in this chapter, or at least spend a ton of time with one for the first time, and that's Alice Manfred, who is Dorcas's aunt and caregiver, so we finally get her point of view. She's a stern and serious woman, a Christian woman, proud Christian woman, who is thrust into care for Dorcas after there's kind of a double, and I maybe I'm forgetting the second thing, so there, to start with, her father is murdered in a hate crime. She is black. Uh, have we not said this? All the characters in the story are black. I guess we should have said it hasn't... 
Oh Maybe yeah, we just we assumed it. I, I don't know why. Like when we mentioned earlier, let's back up and contextualize this again. We just assume people are reading it with us. Uh, if you're not, they are moving from the South during a lot of those moments in American history when Black people were trying to escape conditions in the South to find new lives, new work, new places to live. So anyway, this is part of one of those uh, migrations, population migrations. And so Dorcas's father is killed in a hate crime. Uh, explicitly in East St. Louis, and then is the mother dying the fire because her house is also burned down? What what else happened in that? I was confused. I uh, how did her mother go? There was a uh, so there was a riot, and right, okay. the dad the dad was not uh, participating in it. Instead, he was like dragged out and beaten. Right. Um, right. And then the mom found out about it. And so she went home in order to kind of grieve. And Dorcas was across the street at a neighbor's house having um, a slumber party. Okay. And then the right. house was burned to Her the ground with the mom in it. That yeah. was the thing I couldn't quite remember, but that makes sense. So just about as horrible as you can imagine. That's how Dorcas's life goes when she's a young child. And anyway, she's turned into kind of a strict, strong-willed Christian woman. She hates jazz music and has a long diatribe about that. <laughs> Keep that in mind for the title. It's really the only time that jazz comes up, at least in a really explicit way. Right? Am I missing something? He, yeah, no, that's, yeah. That's, yeah, it's, that's the first a, time. Mm-hmm. It's a few pages long. She has a lot of reflections on the music, which I'll get to. Later in the chapter, we transition to learn more about Dorcas's backstory and kind of her young life. So after Dorcas's house was burned down, an ember of hatred kind of nestles in or settles into her, into her life. She wants to feel wanted, uh, especially there's a scene at a dance with some boys. She wants to get attention but isn't. And so she gets spurned, feels dissatisfied, and then therefore is kind of ready when an old charmer Joe, uh, who is trying to sell cosmetic products, he works for, is it um, Cleopatra? Is that the company yeah. name? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he sells, he's a salesman, but he sells cosmetic beauty products. I, I'm assuming targeted um, for black people, though it doesn't really say that. It's just it's suggested by the clientele he has and kind of like who he's with, you know, and obviously the time period and all those factors, cultural, social. Um, But yeah, anyway, he's selling cosmetics to Alice and her friends. And so it ends with an unlikely moment though, because we, so we get all this backstory about Alice and Dorcas. The chapter though ends with Violet going to Alice's house and her trying to strike up some kind of conversation and hash out what has happened between them. This is of course after Joe has supposedly killed Dorcas and Violet tried to cut up her corpse at the funeral. So a very unlikely ending between two characters you just would think wouldn't have a chat, (laughs) sit down to have a chat. Um, Yeah, it feels weird to plot summarize this book because it sounds insane. (laughs) It is, yeah, I guess that's a credit to Toni Morrison's writing because she immerses you so well. We know that on a word-to-word, in a word-to-word rhetorical and artistic way, she's, you know, nigh untouchable. But yeah, Yeah. summarizing this is strange, for sure. (laughs) It it really is. (laughs) Yeah, it, it moves, it ebbs and flows. Um... Shall we talk about jazz? I, we pulled the yeah, same note for this. Yeah, I think we both were interested in that for this chapter. We kind of have to, right? And I will say there's other intriguing bits, of course. There's the conversation at the end, I think, 
this is the thing. Morrison writes in a very immersive, in, intensive way, psych, you know, psychologically, almost stream of consciousness, settings change, paragraphs jump. Uh, when she does write dialogue, though, it's quite good and really draws you mm-hmm. in, and the characters have striking specific dialects and they they speak concisely and interestingly and so we could assess that stuff it's interesting it's just few and far between uh let's talk about jazz how does this how did this hit you it's a big moment for a book titled jazz yeah and and the uh the complete distaste for it i was kind of taken aback (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, the uh, so Alice really thinks that it's kind of the the basis for like the evil and the and the anger, which I found really interesting. Is is she sees jazz as angry music? Oh yeah, which incites violence and rioting, which is of course something that she fears, considering what happened to her family. Um, but yet she closes the windows against it she she laments that mothers are listening to it with babies on their shoulders and um and that uh children are listening to it and and stuff she's 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 equating jazz music to the downfall of of her people of of the people around her mm mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's there's some morality to it for sure. Quite Christian, I think, in its in its <laughs> incarnation in this incarnation, I guess we'd say. Yeah. But yeah, let's dig into some descriptions because she obviously has such a negative view of it, right? It's it does calls it low down, low down music yeah. in Illinois. It was worse than here. Um, it says had something to do with the silent black women and men marching down Fifth Avenue to advertise their anger over two hundred dead in East St. Louis, two of whom were her sister and her brother-in-law killed in the riots. So she it directly associates it with here's why we're getting killed. Amanda, yeah. would you believe it if I told you that the idea of some cultural phenomenon being blamed for an entire group's problems has not gone away and that still happens <laughs> have you ever heard the the phrase like rap music is evil and is ruined you know it's like that's what's wrong with the insert community uh, that line of thinking has not really gone away in since this book's publication <laughs> for sure yeah. yeah whether it's um music or literature or yeah art or anything like that yeah yeah, it's, uh, yeah. now yeah. And granted this was uh, published in the 90s not in you know the 20s but it's it just that conversation has not died and seems yeah. to be raging on evermore um let me pull some other quotes were there any others that jumped out to you about the music there's some good um, ones in here yeah there there are some really good ones um i i got a page 59 has really the the to me the climactic paragraph about it do you want me to just read the mm-hmm. whole thing do it you got some okay i will yet alice manfred swore she heard a complicated anger in it something hostile that disguised itself as flourish and roaring seduction but the part she hated most was its appetite its longing for the bash the slit a kind of careless hunger for a fight or a red ruby stick pin for a tie either would do it faked happiness, faked welcome, but it did not make her feel generous. This juke joint, barrel hooch, 
tonk house music. It made her hold her hand in the pocket of her apron to keep from smashing it through the glass pane to snatch the world in her fist and squeeze the life out of it for doing what it did and did and did to her and everybody else she knew or knew about. Better to close the windows and the shutters, sweat in the summer heat of a silent Clifton apartment than to risk a broken window or a yelping that might not know where and how to stop. So she's got some uh, emotional instability. (laughs) She's got some anger, uh, perhaps, that is not manifesting outwardly in her. But, yeah, some of those descriptions at the beginning, it's just hilarious to read. So I don't love jazz. Do you love jazz? I I like some jazz. I do, actually. It really is one of my favorite background sounds, but being actively engaged with it doesn't... I can do about a good hour of, like, a jazz show. Uh, The idea of, like, a jazz festival, which in college Milwaukee had one that I went to, eight hours of jazz is not... I'm not interested. It It does not grip me like that. But I will happily do, you know, an hour or two of a show. And as background music... I think it's my preferred because I just think it's going to, it just entices you often enough to like grab your attention. And then if you want to just kind of ignore it, you can. And so I don't know. I like jazz, but some of the descriptions are perfect, but that's why I would like the music I like. So it says like, it disguises itself as flourish and roaring seduction. Like, yeah, jazz is the flashy music. Like there's a reason it's known as the complicated, intricate expertise laden it's you know prestigious in a way i know its Mm -hmm. origins are not that right i know that it it's maybe co-opted gentrified or whatever term we want to use but i think it does have the reputation among music folks as like yeah that's the hard music to play quote unquote right um technical proficiency so i read some of those descriptions and i think yeah for her it's you know a nefarious evil force hiding hiding lying in wait but of course to me i'm like well that's it's the appeal you know Mhm. Mhm. It also like I, I think it's interesting that she, um, that Alice, <clears throat> um, equates the anger with the seduction as well. The 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 roaring seduction because we find out that you know her husband left her for another woman. Yeah. So it could be her own uh, disgust with sexual music seduction and stuff like that in general because of her own situation yeah yeah she i mean obviously her views on this affair she's gonna find it quite loathsome (laughs) given her her views and values and everything else um yeah at some point in the novel haven't a couple characters brought records around that's the only other music reference i could think of yeah the um uh so the the baby that violet wanted to take oh yes um, she was going yeah. for a record exactly the the older sister was like hey watch this baby so i can go grab a record mm-hmm. yeah i mean could could yeah. the symbolism there be more obvious either be a loyal dedicated <laughs> yeah. mother a good christian woman or go mm-hmm. choose your philandering life of jazz <laughs> you gotta yeah. and and lose your baby brother in the process yeah yeah get your priorities <laughs> straight world yeah. <laughs> she, I think, will, of course, make a fascinating contrast and has already to Violet, since they're clearly, you know, that's a relationship that's going to run throughout the book that's it's building it up, them trying yeah. to understand each other and feel each other out. So, 
Yeah, getting that introduction, her kind of diatribes against jazz, I will say, again, it's a musical art form I admire and even like. Maybe not love, but like. Seeing this as her intro, I was intrigued, for sure. I There is something about a person who can really perfectly articulate their dislike of something. I do always love that. Maybe I'm just too cynical a person. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, yeah. Any other thoughts on jazz? The music not the book <laughs> <laughs> nope I, I i also really enjoy jazz it's actually um i went to the first time i met my husband's mom was actually mm-hmm. at a jazz festival so. oh cool yeah was that an all-day thing <laughs> um yeah she was like helping to set it up and we went and like helped to set it up and nice. stuff but i had to be elsewhere like in a couple of hours so i didn't have time to actually like enjoy the festival oh, but yeah that's too bad to be fair there aren't many types of music i would do festivals for anyway but yeah yeah it's just not going to be the music for me that i do on the five hour plane ride and i you know and i need to just kind of get into the zone with some music i do like it though (laughs) yeah all right let's wrap it up with chapter four what do you got what's chapter four about all right this chapter opens with violet's attack on dorcas um who is dead, uh, uh-huh. followed by more background for Violet. We also see that Violet has almost two personalities. There's Violet the unemotional versus Violet the super strong, very angry. Um, we find out that she truly did love Joe at one point when they first met when he fell out of a tree and they talked all night. Um, that security through the night was important to Violet because her father was never home. He was kind of a vagabond and, and kind of like I was, like, not sure what he did because he would disappear for years at a time and then show up with, like, gifts and candies and yeah, yeah. stuff like that for the kids. Um, but whatever he was doing, it was not honest work because he was never sending money home. Um, mm-hmm. uh, his, so her father was never home. Her mother, Rose, committed suicide because of how destitute and abandoned the family was. And um, her grandmother, uh, which is Rose's uh, mother, Truebell, had sent her to a different town to work, um, which is where she met Joe. And apparently she was really terrible at the work. She was Mm -hmm. like 17 years old, but hanging with the 12-year-olds as far as like her workload. Right. Um, After she marries Joe, they agree not to have kids. But by the time Violet feels she can no longer have kids, she begins yearning for them. Um, And the chapter closes with Violet talking to Alice about her relationship with Joe. Yeah, it it really is the first... Well, it's the backstory of their relationship. I was going to say it's the first time we dig into their relationship. That's a little simplistic, but... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, yeah, it's an interesting... And so, like we see references to Violet after the funeral as um, Violent, like they give her the nickname Violent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so that's like the one half of her personality of, of who she sees. Like she's looking through when she acts as Violent, Violent, then she's looking, um, she's like watching it from like a third person perspective as Violet and vice versa. Like it's it's interesting again there's that that break between realities for her kind of yeah they have the in their conversation too 
yeah, I'm not going to read all these quotes because they debate so they talk about so much, but they talk about how some people have knives and some people don't, literally, metaphorically. And so, yeah, there's some clear. You picked up a knife to insult a dead girl, but that's better, ain't it? The harm is already done. She wasn't the enemy. Like they're trying to decide. Uh, where the hurt goes, where the blame for right. the hurt goes. Uh, how did you find their meeting? It, it is quite symbolic. Maybe I'm under-reading some of the symbols because it seemed kind of obvious, but he literally falls out of a tree and almost hit, like, it's it's a real, you know, from the sky falls this random force that will change you kind of a vibe. And so, yeah. I don't, yeah, I mean, trees associated with knowledge and wisdom for sure, but also you know, the falling out of it, like, he's kind of buffoonish or silly in a sense, and, you know, he also, like you said, doesn't seem to have any purpose or doesn't really know what's going on, doesn't have a a strong sense of what's what's happening. He works in the gin house, he says, and they, they have a little repartee. It's definitely the most they speak in the whole book, so it was a meaningful yeah. moment for sure. How, did yeah. you read any symbols into that or any meaning into those? Because I, I guess I laughed because it was just kind of this random, almost cosmic force feeling, um... Yeah, what'd you think of it? Yeah, I, I was just like, <laughs> it, I, I laughed a little bit that he fell out of a tree. Um, and then, like, they had this conversation all night, and she's just immediately, like, this dude who can't even, like, sleep correctly. Like, <laughs> she's mm-hmm. like, oh, he's the best dude. And, like, immediately she just decides that he's the one for her and that he's the, the one that's going to provide her with that security and safety that she's been looking for. Yeah. Um, her whole life. Yeah, I mean, she the, the quotes here are pretty damning in, in a sense, not that she couldn't make a decision for herself or shouldn't have, but just it says his name was Joseph, and even before the sun rose when it was still hidden in the woods, but freshening the world's green and dazzling acres of white cotton against the gash of a ruby horizon, Violet claimed him. Hadn't he fallen practically in her lap? Hadn't he stayed all through the night, taking her sass, complaining, teasing, explaining, but talking, talking her through the dark? So, again, some symbolism with dark and daylight there is pretty obvious. They, they needed each other. She needed him emotionally, stability. But the two questions there, I mean, if those are the two founding questions of your relationship, what, the first is, <laughs> wasn't this so random? And the second one is, aren't you still here? I, I don't know if those are the healthiest, you know, if those are the healthiest questions, but it does tell us a lot about her psychology you know yeah i thought it yeah, does yeah and the the dark daylight the tree falling from the tree i, I don't know if i'm under reading or over reading those things but it did feel a pretty fitting origin story for this couple yeah definitely <laughs> and a lot more innocent use of trees than i think in the bluest eye which we've also done on the podcast before tony morrison mm-hmm. book wasn't there there was something in the forest where a guy was made to masturbate in front of somebody. Wasn't that also in a tree or something? That was, so that was, um, what was the main character? Per, per, I don't know. You're asking Perkula? me names from <clears throat> half a year ago. <laughs> I not yeah. remember any of it. Do you see how I remember this very small story moment? Like probably <laughs> yeah. mostly accurately. And I don't remember, I remember zero names from that whole book. I don't, yeah, that was um so per I think the the main character's name Perkola, who's the one mm-hmm. who was abused um and wants the bluest eyes. That's her dad's story and it was in mm-hmm. um he was like hooking up with this one girl um in the bushes. Yes, okay. And he was and shamed in the, front of this exactly, farmer. Exactly. The white guys came in and like forced him to continue, even yeah. though obviously he was not interested at that point. Yeah, very disturbing. Okay. Yeah, so in, in compared to that, I mean 
my goodness, this is a much more innocent use of a tree to indicate some conflict still, but not nearly in such a disturbing fashion. Any other thoughts on the fourth chapter, things you want to discuss? Um, so here again, this is where it really struck me, too, with the, the importance of the mother-child relationships. Um, yeah. And also Violet's lack of children. So we see... So in, in the in chapter two or whatever, both Joe and Dorcas are broken people. Um, we don't know necessarily what Joe's background story is, but he does have that whole big paragraph about like looking for his mom and wanting his mom and wanting his lovers to be like a mom to him. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a hundred percent sure on that. Um, and then here, Violet is also looking for the sense of security and safety that her mother lacked and that she did not get in her own home life, um, that lack of stability. So not wanting to have kids and her life is no longer stable either at the point with which she like wants to have kids. Um I, I just find it really fascinating and I, I want to see how this develops because in every chapter thus far there has been mention of either children or of the parents of these characters themselves mm-hmm. and and their, the broken relationships there and, and or the lack of a relationship there and how it's kind of like affecting them all so like Definitely. reading this I thought it would be the love story but it seems to be like how a love story is impacted by by um the the parent child relationship specifically the mother yeah it's it's funny i'm gonna do some kind of broad genre speak but it's if i had to recommend this book to somebody only halfway through i don't think any of the first words i would use would be like harlem or jazz or black (laughs) even like black american history though that i think her work is so infused with that there in like african-american history that it's just i you always have to say that with her stuff because it's so intriguing and always she writes through that lens or something so but mm-hmm. but like the main kind of obvious topical things don't really work <laughs> here it's it is yeah. really kind of an intimate couple falling apart love triangle you know betrayal story or something i don't know it is yeah any thoughts on motherhood i the only quote i could pull is kind of it just reiterates everything you said it's there's some interesting imagery here violet was drowning in it deep dreaming about you know motherhood um, she talks about she d- does a question a series of questions of betrayal who lay there asleep in that coffin who posed there in that photograph this scheming bitch who had not considered violet's feelings one tiniest bit who came into a life took what she wanted damn the consequences and so she's directing part of her hatred for her is yeah, that she took this... It's not like they were going to have a family, though. Aren't they both 50 when this happens? Or in their 50s or yeah. 40s? They're in their I mean, 50s, I, You can yeah. have a family then, I suppose, but I, I know the odds aren't in your favor, so to speak, but it's... Uh, yeah, and so she's directing a lot of that rage at her, even though it, it seems like that time went. You know, there's like a 30-year gap when we... <laughs> it's like, where, where were your emotional state during that 30-year gap between when we met you and this time in your late 40s when having a kid is just so so difficult you know if not impossible yeah and it's interesting too because like continuing on with that 
like her feelings about Dorcas with with Dorcas too she starts to kind of change and starts thinking like wondering am I do I really hate her or do I see her as that last miscarried child like is she symbolic of that last miscarried child is that what Joe is really looking for and stuff like that so I thought that was also interesting yeah that she was making that connection yeah, she describes the longing for a child um, heavier than sex, a panting, unmanageable crave, or unmanageable craving, rather. So it is, yeah, it's a force kind of upending her, even her daily life, pushing her, pushing her, and pulling her around. Any final thoughts on the first four chapters? I do think, like you said and noted so well, I think the back half, my motif alerts are going to be for, yeah, parenting, childhood. And those familial relationships, I don't know, who knows if jazz will ever come up again? It's not, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> it's just a few some, more records, maybe. <laughs> sure, it's just something that Alice characterized her so well, you know? Give an intro yeah. of a character who just really hates something and sees it as a moral yep. failing <laughs> for, for an entire people. A bit of self-hatred, too, out of Alice in that sense, but... Yeah, she she just sure. wants to do her tailoring work and just leave her alone. Mm-hmm. She's contributing in her own way to society. All right, let's move on to some ending segments. In our Book Club Part 1 episodes, we do like to end with just a couple of fun segments to further discuss the book. Let's do the list first. I think I've always got this out of order. We'll end with the please continue. It just makes more sense to end with that. (laughs) Right? No? Okay, let's make a list. Everyone loves lists. We know you guys out there love them. Let's rank some stuff. Uh, For this book, we're going to make a top three list in part one for the most noteworthy or interesting observations about life in the city, which we're assuming is New York. We're pretty confident in that. So what did you notice, Amanda? Start with your number three, things about living in New York. No green curtain on the train. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so there's like the, the, the segregation Right, the absence mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Although there is, like, I mean, still, obviously, um, uh, different types of segregation neighborhoods and and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. The- I think we've well proven in 2022 that you can have massive uh, societal racial issues without there being uh, legally binding segregation. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, there's definitely conflict happening. Um, there, there is the commentary by the guy, again, we kind of jump inside of his head, the guy serving the food, and he's annoyed that they all bring their own food and don't pay for the probably, you know, more overpriced train car food. <laughs> right. But, uh, right. you know, he's like, well, they always bring uh, biscuits and bacon biscuits in bags, and I just thought, that sounds great. I would love to just always have a bag <laughs> of bacon biscuits on me, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> That's a good one. My number three is just the surprise you get sometimes in a city when the sunset is good. And I will, this is me inserting this now. The book doesn't dwell on this. But I would say the same goes for somehow you live in a city, but the stars just come out more than usual. And you're just like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I can be, I can still participate in this. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I can still enjoy this moment, even though I don't live in a place where it's the best. Same goes with sunsets, you know. Sometimes you're, you have too many buildings around to really enjoy it but uh, occasionally you just catch the right the right energy the right colors especially when it's like the purple and orange that's my favorite sunset I yeah just, mm, i love that definitely um my number two is um when people move to the city quote they feel more like themselves more like the people they always believed they were mm-hmm 
So you can you can be who you want to be. That's a pretty classic one too. Very New yeah. York. I want to be an actor. Energy coming off that one. Mm-hmm. But it is also the case that a a large place, especially if you're moving out to be on your own or find whatever it is, career lifestyle, it does kind of show you who you are. I suppose so. That's yeah. that's well said. My number two is just people being revelrous outside and drinking outside. I think. There's some quote, and I forgot the context for it already. This book can be hard to contextualize things because it moves so quickly around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think it's a, I think it was something that Alice hated because she would see women drinking beer outside, like cold beer on patio mm-hmm. or not patios, but on um, what am I trying to think of railings, overhangs, <laughs> whatever the term is. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that's I think that very much feels like a New York City thing to me of just people kind of being out almost on the sidewalk, just socializing there. It's like there's not a lot of space anyway. Let's just go yep. outside and have some time. Yeah, it's a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is very big city, like not just New York, but like any big city that you go to, like where housing is super cramped. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yep. Yeah. Uh, my number one is everyone disciplining everyone else's kids when yeah. they, they're like, cut that mess out. And they do. Um, and it's just like you think of the big city as you, you're being like lonely and like, you know, you're nobody's looking out for you, which is, you know, the case when you're not in your neighborhood, when you're not near your neighbors. But it can in in certain neighborhoods feel like an actual smaller community of like suburbia almost talk about to me and we live in a i would say i don't know the numbers anymore but a major u.s city now granted u.s doesn't Mm -hmm. have mega metropolis cities like china has a lot more major cities than we do that kind of anyway but we live in a big u.s city and the idea of me in public scolding another person's kid is just so insane (laughs) and i don't think i've ever even seen that in person let alone participated in it and even fact i this is a good example because i this just happened the other day in the park there was a dog that was kind of not misbehaving but this this guy was kind of just letting it go out of control and you could see people were kind of looking at the dog and kind of eyeing it but even then no one jumped in or said anything and i do think there's Mm. a certain attitude in new york i don't know if it's because of the size or the culture the kind of just new york new york yeah i guess cultural aspects to it the way people behave and speak but it does seem like a place where you're more likely to get involved with strangers for better and worse you know they're described mm-hmm. in the story as amiable at some point but also they'll heckle your child and like criticize them if it's causing them a problem <laughs> it's they're not they're yeah. going to get involved for the good and the bad whereas yeah i don't know in the city we live in i just don't you don't see those kind of casual almost interactions that frequently in public yeah maybe not in like a big public setting but the, the where this happens it's like within their their neighborhood so like in my neighborhood my next door neighbor and um the the kids next to them if they do anything that i'm like nope you can't do that like i i will yeah step out and be like don't you do that (laughs) that is a much better comparison for sure yeah the immediacy of the neighborhood is a big big aspect to it yeah that's a good point and I i don't live next to that dog I did have to get away from it, though, because it was, that thing was howling. That thing was barking. You don't hear a bark that loud very often. It was also just a big dog, so what can you do? 
Oh. My number one is the neighbor. I forget her name already. The one with the letters. But having a neighbor who is completely disinterested in getting entangled with their other neighbors, but still kind of mm. knows about them and like, but just wants to stay away and be like, look, we don't, we already have to put up with each other. Let's not deepen this. You know, I don't want to be further <laughs> entangled with your mess and your business. <laughs> um, yep. And I do think in a place like New York where so it's basically all apartments, right? There's no houses to break things up there's no right. other spaces and so you really are stacked i just think you have to have neighbor stories in these kinds of novels because it just seems impossible to live in a place like that with so much um stacked and cramped housing that it would not become a part of your almost daily life you know where it's just yeah. it's just so much going on so much crammed into one place so i enjoyed that kind of neighborly i don't know if i'd even call it beef but a little bit of neighborly conflict yeah mm-hmm. that was my final she, she's an interesting character for sure I'm, I'm like oh yeah I like to observe as well I, I, I like her <laughs> I honestly try not to either almost intentionally like I don't I'll you know I'll wave and say hi to my neighbors if I see them but I try not to you know I could do things like stare at the packages they get at their door and be like what companies are they but you know those kinds of little but I almost <laughs> just try and keep the anonymity high or sometimes uh, with my neighbor next to me where I live you I can pass by their kitchen window and like my blinds are always drawn because I just like the privacy but sometimes they'll have there's a open and I like very purposely try and tilt my head the other way because it's just like I want them to have the privacy too like I could take a good three seconds stare into their kitchen if I if I wanted you know but <laughs> I'm just like oh I just need to not I just would prefer to not know because um, I'm sure they don't want me to know I mean that's the it seems right to me if they want me to mm-hmm. know I guess uh, maybe I should be creeping a little more um, <laughs> and you don't get those fun interactions anymore Amanda homeowner privilege <laughs> I know, I know. That's good, though. All right, let's conclude today's book club with our final segment, which, again, should be the final segment, which is the Please Continue Make It Stop segment. This is when we each give one thing from the book that we've enjoyed, we'd like to continue, and then one that we've disliked, and we'd like to make it stop. For Toni Morrison, that can be a tall task. I will say this novel's not been without some flaws in my mind. It does not feel uh, as coherent as the other one, which is weird to say, because that other one was her first novel. Anyway... Uh, Let me actually start then, because I just went negative. I'll do my make it stop first. I think the character switching is getting to be a bit much within each chapter. I know that it's probably not her way to organize around characters, but that was how her other book was. And to me, it let her experiment with other ideas and language and aspects. This one has been kind of jarring. Like there are some abrupt transitions within the chapters of you're just thinking, and also it does it with timelines too. It's very jazz like in that unpredictable, you know, loose improvisational way, but it has been jarring. And so I've definitely done more rereading in this book than I have in other ones. I've also been in a cold med induced haze when I've been reading this. (laughs) Honestly, part of it, I could not tell part of me thought, this is because you're on cold meds and this is just not, your attention is not at 100%. Your brain's not firing at its best. But then also I was like, no, this does seem strange. Like she's maybe jumping a bit too much and it's becoming hard to pin down. So I don't know if that's a me thing. No, not at all. I, I, I agree that the, the jumping back and forth with the narrators is something that's been, not terrible for me except for with Malvone even though I find her interesting I'm like was it really necessary to have her 
voice in there? Like, why was mm-hmm. she a, a narrator or, like, why was it told from her point of view in particular, especially since it was just that one time and right. we still haven't, you know, we haven't seen her, like, really again. And my make it stop is, is kind of tied to that in that I find the first person narrator kind of jarring for me because the there's like this third person omniscient narrator point of view for the most part but then suddenly we'll see I me me and, and stuff like that and then mm-hmm. so on if you look on page um, 96 that's when this is why I think that actually Violet one of the Violets like one of the perceptions of herself Violet might be the narrator so um she says that violet is not somebody walking around town up and down the streets wearing my skin and using my eyes shit no that violet is me the me that hauled hay in virginia and handled a four mule team in the brace i have stood in cane fields in the middle of the night when the sound of it's rustling hid the slither of the snakes and I stood still waiting for him and not stirring a speck in case he was near and I would miss him and damn the snakes my man was coming for me and who or what was going to keep me from him and it mm-hmm. continues yeah so and it opens in the third person with Violet too and so right yeah I, <laughs> I it would make sense I suppose just maybe she's disassociating really hard but yeah it's the narrator thing in this is kind of a mess it kind of is, and and I'm hoping that there's some more clarity later, but I'm I'm not holding out a whole lot of hope for that. Yeah, and it, this is where I think our endeavor on the pod breaks from. It is a question that if this were in a college classroom, would absolutely have to get hashed out in a very probably convoluted and long-winded way. It would be difficult to... It's like, it's a task so challenging that for our purposes on this, and I, we like to obviously pick things apart, analyze, That's we both enjoy that. But I like draw the line where I'm like, I'm not unpacking that question because it's just too messy. There's just way too many moments you'd have to bring up and little things you'd have to nitpick about whose point of view it is and how they and just it i don't know it's a it's an intriguing question i don't know if i'm suited to the task you know in the context of this pod but it's been it's been a bit jarring for sure yeah it has been you could you could definitely write an essay on it no question no question (laughs) it would take a lot of it would take a lot of literary power to do um my Please Continue is, and I had to go simple here because there's a lot, obviously, but I think it's the Violet and Alice relationship. It's understatedly strange, and obviously there's tension and awkwardness to it. I think those characters have been pretty well drawn so far, though Violet's a bit of a messier picture for sure. She's more complex and is unraveling in the story a little more slowly, or un- Morrison's unveiling her a little more slowly. Alice had such a clear snapshot introduction. And so, yeah, maybe it's a bit contrived so far. Maybe their kind of uneasy tension, but we want to figure each other out thing is, I don't know if it's obvious, but it's, I don't know. It's intriguing me. I, I think I want to see how they get further tangled up and if they can come to some kind of understanding with one another. It's enjoyable. And she doesn't do dialogue that often, but when she does, I think it sparkles for the most part. Yep. So I think yep. more of that would be great. The, that that is my please continue is just the dialogue. Um, I think that Morrison is 
is really great with dialogue in general, which is also something that we enjoyed with The Bluest Eye <clears throat> when we read that. Um, she just is able to give such clarity to her characters' voices when they speak and the concision with which she gets the points across and, and can, like, really characterize um, each person who speaks. I just find that really... Um, really well done, especially in, in this novel in particular, where all the paragraphs are like so long. <laughs> like I It's mean, dense. Yeah. It's been a dense read. It's, yeah. It's like par- a paragraph can, can span two pages um, in this particular novel, which is very different from the bluest eye. From what I remember, the bluest eye was very concise in, in, paragraph chunking and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But um, regardless, so the, the the dialogue itself, when it cuts in there, it's just like, wow, that was like really like punchy, you know? Yeah. And it and it's such a breath of fresh air. You're just like, oh, wow. I was like almost drowning under some of these like philosophical musings. And then I get this wonderful piece of, of just light banter, which is really, it's a great way to break up those paragraphs. Little life raft, little oasis yeah. until the next, until the next bit. Every conversation yeah. in this book has had such interesting clarity, interesting character details with clarity. You know, it's it's yeah. been something that is does not take so much unpacking and mental gymnastics to pull apart, understand, and so yeah, it's little reprieves. Very enjoyable. An excellent pick. Any final thoughts on the first half of Jazz by Toni Morrison? Uh, nope. Okay. Well, if you've made it this far, we really appreciate you listening to the whole episode and going on this journey with us. We'll be posting the second half, so part two of Jazz by Toni Morrison next Friday. We always post our book clubs on Fridays, unless I'm sick and forget to, which I did last week, so (laughs) (laughs) not last week, folks. Uh, If you're hearing this in the future when you're hearing this... um, We'll be spoiling, obviously, the back half in our next episode, though I haven't counted the chapters, but just assume it's the, the back half of the story. On Facebook and Instagram, you can again follow us at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word, so check us out there. Ratings and recommendations on any podcast platform are always greatly appreciated and well-received, and until next time, we'll see you between the pages.